As we're moving deeper into season two of Nurturing Wellbeing with Kurt Kelly, we are attempting to expand our conversations in some uh, other areas that we haven't talked about in the past. One of them is a national uh, activity that's taking place around lived experience, getting uh, youth, children, and adults and, and parents that have lived experience in the child welfare arena to engage. And here in Florida, we're working on some key legislation and some uh, key work to be able to get parents engaged. So this episode, has from the great state of North Carolina, two subject matter experts, Matt Anderson of Children's Home Society and Mariah Thompson-Grizette, uh, also from CHS, are going to come and talk with us about what they're doing in the area of lived experience. I think you're gonna really enjoy the conversation uh, and see some of the great things that are happening across the nation and how we are nurturing well-being. We're so glad to be able to have you guys on. Matt and Mariah, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, but we talked a little bit off camera. And all I can tell you is I'm going to try to get out of your way because I know the things that you have experienced and what you're doing in North Carolina. By the way, you, you do some great things in that state. Matt, let me start with you a little bit. Tell us, kind of give us a little bit of your title, your background, and what kind of moved you into this area of uh, lived experience. Kurt, thank you for having us. And uh, it's a pleasure. So a little bit about my background. I've been in the child welfare field for about 15 years now. Um, I started as a uh, case manager working with kids who are aging out of foster care. That was sort of my entry point to the system and really where it uh, solidified for me that my focus and my work was going to be about um, how do we make this system better for kids who are aging out? And now more importantly, how do we make this system better for the families that we serve so that we can prevent entries into the foster care system in, in the first place. And so a uh, variety of different things in my background. Uh, currently, I serve as vice president of programs and business development. So in that role, um, I have program leadership responsibilities for our foster care and adoption services across the state of North Carolina. Uh, in the business development area, just one, one focus area there is our public policy work, governmental affairs work. So I am a registered lobbyist here in North Carolina, have worked with our state legislature for years. And then lastly, uh, we've launched the Institute for Family. And this is a new initiative the Children's Home Society launched in late 2020. And it's an opportunity for us to expand our reach and our impact beyond direct services, um, but still very focused on this goal of let's keep families together and let's prevent foster care entries in, in the first place. And I'm sure we'll get into some of that as we as we go forward. So thank you. Well, and thank you for uh, coming to be a part of us today. Uh, Mariah, I know we talked about this as well, and you're, you also work with CHS and you have a certain particular area and that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, hi, Kurt. Thank you so much for having me. So I serve as the engagement specialist for Institute for Families. And I started doing this advocacy work with Say So, which stands for Strong Able Youth Speaking Out. And we're an advocacy organization in North Carolina, and we just work to improve the outcomes for youth in care and educate the community and speak out about needed changes. So um, I wanted to find a space where I could use my voice as a positive outlet and advocate for youth in care so they wouldn't have to go through the same experiences that I went through. So I wanted to just um, pave the way for youth in care, use my voice to advocate, and um, just get out there and um, support my community and make things a whole lot better overall. 
Awesome. Well, it sounds like you are doing that. As we are talking about lived experience, why is it important for us to take and elevate this element of uh, into the child welfare arena? As we begin to have these conversations, why is it so important for us to be able to elevate and even normalize uh, some of these lived experiences into the, the conversation? Absolutely. I definitely think that lived experience should be framed as lived expertise, us coming together to partner to make better outcomes for youth and children and families, um, and not so much having a divide between the two. Um, just coming together to eliminate all the barriers that were created to help build trust with families and um, youth and young adults. So I think that partnering and working together will definitely help to create better outcomes overall and utilizing the family voice and their perspective and also partnering with agency workers and partners just to make things a whole lot better overall in terms of practice, policy, and also procedure. So when we talk about lived experience, you're, and you've used the word voice a couple of times, the family voice, having a youth voice, being able to get that involved at. Uh, Matt, tell me a little bit about that. How, how does that look when you're, when you're engaging someone? Uh, how is it that you bring that voice to bear? And how are you drawing out of those experiences in life into the conversation that is then trying to move the conversation into constructive uh, behavior? First, I think what I would say is to your question about why should we be doing this? Why elevate? Um, I think it's mission critical. Whether we're organizational leaders or public policy uh, professionals, I think it's absolutely necessary. And I think that I'll, I'll give you an example um, that, I, that I love of an organizational leader um, who said to me one time, this is a CEO, he said, you know, I'm really, really good at talking about what we do as an organization, what services we provide, you know, why we provide them, really good at that. But then he said, I don't think I know um, if, if I were to ask myself, what do families need me to do? I don't think I know that answer. And so to know what you do, but to know what families need you to do can often be very different things. And I think that was his experience. And so what he did was said to his, his staff who are working directly with families, hey, with your cell phone, ask families that you serve that question, what do you need us to do? And then bring that back. And, and what he was going to do with that was share with his, his board of directors in a kind of visioning exercise, the answers that, that he, he received back. So, you know, we have to be informed about what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're going forward by the, by the, the people that we serve. And if we're in leadership roles at the policy level, the organizational level, it's so easy for us to get completely disconnected from the day-to-day -day work and from the families that we serve. So we have to find these ways. And so he, he used that as a strategy, um, but as leaders, we should be finding ways to just simply listen. So we're gonna have to create the opportunities to either go out into the field with our staff to do you know, um, focus groups to do, there's any number of ways that we can create opportunities to listen, to learn from people's expertise, as Mariah said, and then how do we take action together? Um, and I think that we can get creative as leaders about how to, how to do that. When you go out into the community, do you often hear a common theme 
so sort of the experiences that would be felt in one area of the state might be somewhat, the, maybe a little bit different, but somewhat this is the same. And you sort of codify all of that and sort of bring that into a, a, a work. You're asking their uh, ideas and concerns and from their own experience. And then you're trying to bring that into a workable solution is, is, are you finding that often that there's a, there's a general theme that's out there across this when you're asking for their help? Yeah, we, we do. And so, yes, the Institute for Family has been doing its work for the last year or so. We've been having lots of conversations all over the country with, with professionals and with people uh, who have lived the system largely as parents, but also as young people. And we, um, so our, our, we have a podcast as well um, called Seen Out Loud. So uh, episode one of that podcast is a young woman from Florida um, who shares a poem with us. And she says in the poem, kind of the, the line that is the whole point of the poem is, um, what if we didn't have to wait for bad enough? Why didn't they just help my mama? This was a young woman who was separated from her mom for 14 years in foster care. What we learned from, from Slam and her mom, Lily, is that there were concrete needs that her mom had. Um, it wasn't about an intervention of foster care. It wasn't about evidence-based parenting programs necessarily. It was about safe and stable housing. It was about health care. It was about child care. It was about these kinds of basic um, concrete needs that we all have, but for some families, those very much go unmet. And that stress that comes from those kinds of conditions can lead to the situations that then Child Protective Services starts to get involved. So that's the theme that we're hearing from parents is let's not wait for bad enough. Let's understand these root cause concrete need-based issues and let's solve problems upstream rather than waiting and removing and separating kids. You knew this, that I was in the, in the legislature and it's kind of interesting as you're saying this, I, I remember when I had to run a, a major piece of legislation and I went around the state on a real listening tour and what I thought I was going to get uh, I was not necessarily, I mean, I got a lot of the stuff that we, we had initial ideas about, but what I thought I was going to get, I actually started getting some really different perspectives and you started hearing things, but there was a general common theme and there was, it's, therefore I could come in when I began to look at policy, more of a scientific approach that I could uh, try to address these issues instead of, instead of it just being a gut feeling uh, to trying to provide solving problems, it became, began to say, look, we could put this type of policy in place. And here's where we would begin to, to see uh, and address these things. Let me go to Mariah and ask you a question around, as you're doing these things, what are some of the examples of, uh, as you're engaging the youth or, or parents, what are some of the uh, impact that you're, you're actually seeing and, and how CHS is being able to, to bring this in and begin to work in these areas? Okay. Um, Great. Um, I'm actually seeing impact in the work that we're doing out in the community um, when families actually want to share their experience to help others and their expertise. We actually had the opportunity to um, interview um, a young woman um, and she was just talking about her experiences and how she really didn't feel like she had a lot of um, advocates on her side or allies, or even someone just, just to consider her situation and to just sympathize and empathize with her. And I think that that goes a long way, um, sympathy, empathy, and compassion. So um, them being willing to share their stories to help um, 
bridge the gap and to help create better experiences for others is what I've seen. And um, I really enjoy um, them just engaging with us and being able to be vulnerable and being able to share their stories. In Florida, we started an organization called One Voice Impact. And uh, the word impact is an acronym, uh, innovation, music, arts, performance, athletics. And it was focused at youth, but really our our intention was to get our youth together and begin to listen to them. And so we talked about their talents and their abilities and some of those things and how to utilize that. But really what we wanted to do is we wanted to hear from them. And uh, this One Voice Impact, we seeded it here at the Florida Coalition for Children. And we have now, uh, our intention was never to hold it here inside the coalition, but to move it outside to one of our folks. And an organization called Selfless Love has taken this, and they have taken it to new heights. And they do a lot of listening. And, uh, and, and, And sometimes it's easier to talk at people to give them really good ideas and policy. And here's some things and government's great about that stuff. But like what you just said, uh, just to hear them, but not just to hear them and, and, and let them vent. It's, it's, it's a scientific way of pulling that information so that they know there may be something that's going to come from hearing that. And uh, we have found that uh, with One Voice Impact through Selfless Love, we are really doing a great job of being able to move future policy or, or a lot of relationships with the Department of Children and Families. Man, I know the same thing on the on the parent side. Um, and I don't know that Florida, and I'll just speak from our, I don't know that Florida's done that good a job of bringing the parent side into this conversation. And I, and I want us to. And so I know that you've had, you, you guys have sort of been on the forefront of some of that. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. And, and what I would say is that we're, we're at the beginning of our own process here in North Carolina of how do we more effectively and authentically in a meaningful, practical ways engage parent leadership around the problems that we're trying to, to solve. So we, we're, we're learning too. Um, I'll, I'll point to some, some places where I think that there's um, a lot of progress and people are really doing great work. We've seen, though, this, this process of engagement move policy um, in, in a variety of ways and, and be incredibly effective. It's been with, with youth leadership and youth voice in my history. Um, and if you want me to, I can come back and give some examples of that. But I've seen it be incredibly effective in, in not just uh, moving the policy forward, um, but youth leadership and youth voice is incredibly effective in helping a policymaker advance whatever that policy issue is that they're working on you have to create those partnerships, right, and build that coalition. And, and youth and parent leadership is incredibly effective in doing that. Um, that work that I've seen has been transformative to the current state of the child welfare system, right? We can point to all kinds of policy at the state and, and federal level where youth leadership was absolutely critical in designing what the policy was and getting it to move through Congress or a state legislature. And when they hear from uh, advocates like that, when they're actually engaged, they've, it's been in their life. Let me give you an example. Here in Florida, we've got a big issue <laughs> and we could have our examples and I want to hear some of your examples, but um, we have a big situation about case management 
and we're having a hard time hanging on to case managers with the, the, after the great uh, resignation period of time, that's the stress on the job, the whole COVID. And we're seeing some areas that are affected 50, 60% turnover. And so we've made a major pitch to the legislature why we have to have this. And I've made a logical uh, presentation and a, a sort of a natural presentation why we have to have these positions. But I'll tell you what, when the youth sat down in front of them and said, let me tell you, Mr. Policymaker, that what it means to me is, is that I, I have a continuity with one case manager who knows me and I'm not just a case now. I'm a person and they, they know me. I don't have to get to know somebody else and then somebody else and then somebody else. And there was an aha moment for that legislator to understand that. And, and that's where, when we can put that kind of right messaging in front of legislators, it's not whining. It's, it's actually telling how the system works better. And uh, I think that was a, we heard about that example. And we, what we heard was that the, the legislator was just like there in just a second, just it all came together. I could make my two, I could make my 25 page white paper that we provided for them. That's important, but they got it in a moment. I'm sure you have examples like that. It, it, I, I do. And Yes, the white paper is important and the, and the data is important. Uh, we have to have that, right? We have to be grounded in that. It's not compelling. It's, it's typically not compelling enough to move something forward. It's head and heart, right? It's, it's data and story. We have to have the story that undergirds the data to be able to compel us to move in a certain direction. That's just the way human beings are hardwired because story is part of our DNA. It's been part of it for for millennia from day one. So you have to have, you have to have both. But what's what's more interesting to me about this engagement work is that, you know, you and I talked about this, that I see policymakers as professional problem solvers, right? So you go to the legislature or Congress to solve problems, which is admirable. The challenge is we can't expect a policymaker to know all the problems that exist in the world and certainly not to know what the solutions are all the time. So we have to go to people that are living the reality of what that issue is, parents in the child welfare system, youth in foster care. We have to go to them as the experts to help us understand what really are these issues and what are the solutions that can be effective. And then let's craft our legislation from that place. And now we've got a group of ad advocates that can create coalition around moving our issues forward. So a great example of that is the Family First Prevention Services Act. We all know that federal policy. And that started with one um, staffer to the Senate Finance Committee, Becky Shipp, who you all probably know in Florida. I know Becky very well. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, I was, I was in D.C. on Capitol Hill the first time that she had a listening session. And it was two young people that I worked with in Montana who aged out of foster care. And it set her on this course of, I have to create a series of listening sessions and I have to bring people from all over the country to Capitol Hill to tell us what the issues are and then start to create some solutions with us. And it was that, that series of listening sessions that led to the initial kind of first framework um, of, of what became the Family First Act. And so it was, that was a necessary process that got to not perfect policy, but good policy that's moving us in a positive direction as a field. And that's what I wanna see with, with parent engagement, right? I want to see Congress and state legislatures bringing parents together in the same way to figure out, okay, what are the more root cause conditions that families are experiencing? That if we address those, solve some of those, 
we would see families um, not be so overburdened by the stresses of, of unmet needs and their kids are going to do better. Their communities are going to do better as a, as a society. We're going to do better if we can solve some of these issues. And I would I would just point to Washington State as one place where they, I think, are really ahead of the curve. Their public policy work uh, most recently is being driven by the parent ally movement, by parents who have experienced the child welfare system and are now organized and advocating for public policy. And they're making great headways. I mean, they're, they're sort of setting the agenda in some ways around what, what we need to be doing um, around policy for families. And so it's just one, one place for us to look to. I'm taking a lot of inspiration from Washington right now because I think they're showing us the way. That's great. You know, you've used the term, and Mariah, I'm going to come to you, uh, the term called authentic engagement. All right. So uh, it's one thing to engage someone, but to know that you're you're actually inviting them in to to come have a conversation and it be authentic. Uh, give me some examples of uh, how how that plays out when you're when you're actually inviting folks and trying to building that that trust and that relationship. For me, I can say that engaging people authentically consists consists of actually creating a space for them to come and speak actually um, listening, acknowledging, and then doing something with that information that you get to make conditions and to make things better. Um, as far as policymakers go, um, I think you should look to build relationships with youth and young adults and partnerships with them, not just invite them to come out and speak, you know, one time and it's a done thing. Like, what can we do to engage them moving forward and build relationships where they can actually trust us and come in and help us and we can create a partnership? Um, I think that's really important too as well because you don't want youth to feel like, you know, they're being um, put in a position to not be valued or, you know, to be, you know, tokenized. You know, what can we do to make this youth feel like we value their perspective and their input? Really Let's camp around that word. I like that word, tokenized, because I hate to say that, but often in politics, that's what happens. Uh, someone will come and say, oh, like I told you, uh, a lot of times, and I've, I tell this to people all the time, I had to write a book one day called uh, Beyond the Awe, because people say, what do you do? Well, I work with children and families and abused, abandoned, neglected children. They go, oh, that's nice. It's no, that that's, that's it, it, this is challenging. This is, it's painful at times when you're, when you're engaged in this. What happens in the political realm is easy to hear a problem, want to come up with a solution and move on. Now we've, we've fixed everything. And this is life and it doesn't fix everything. It fixes little things at a time. I like the fact that when we bring youth here to have that open and honest conversation, but it's got to be properly directed. And I try not to, and our organizations try not to put an agenda before them and say, go, go, go sell this. I want them to talk to them, but then also to learn not just talking to power. It's not, you're not just speaking to power. It's having a direct conversation, understanding that if they are, like you said, Matt, if they are problem solvers, then they're going to want to hear a clear and articulated problem, but then an understanding of how that problem can be resolved. And so as I'm kind of looking at this and, and, and as we're doing this, I like what you said is tokenism, because if there's not an accountability process on both ends, if it, if the if the presenter is not saying, look, this is the facts and the and the receiver is saying, OK, I'm hearing you now. I want to try to do some things and trying to set that relationship up. And that's not a one time event. Um, last thing I tell you, I used to 
I used to have so many meetings in my office. People would come in and you just forgot that you met with them like four hours later because you've just had meeting after meeting after meeting. And what I always try to do was say, what is the follow-up? What's not only the takeaway, but what is the follow-up? And I think that when we start talking about true authentic engagement, it's not, it's not authentic if it's not hearing them and then saying we're going to do something to resolve this area. Am I correct in that area? Matt, Matt, Matt you're shaking your head. Does that make sense when, we, when, when I say that there has to be some level of we're presenting this for you. We would like to see some solutions in this. Yeah. And, and Mariah, feel free to add to it if you like, but I think you already said it around accountability and action. And, you know, so I'll just take Mariah's words there. I think that's, I think that's what it is. And it's, it's part of where the challenge uh, lies in, in this approach to, to work, right? If we're going to do meaningful, authentic engagement, we have to be accountable to the things that we're saying we're going to take action on. And to your point, uh, Kurt, you know, listening is, is fundamental, right? It is the process, right? You listen to people um, to understand their expertise. So what does that mean? You can't come with your agenda first. You can't say, here's what it is. Now, do you like this or not like this? Would you kind of stamp approval and go help me move this? No, that's, that's, a, that's an inauthentic or tokenized engagement, right? And so you have to respect the expertise that other people bring. And you have to create um, a relationship where it's enduring, and then you're finding, you're crafting solutions together, right? And then your both parties are accountable to what that solution is, what the action is that's going to follow. So I, I think I think you're right, but that takes time, right? I mean, I, I I see at the legislature here in North Carolina, things can move incredibly fast, and that's good because we get things accomplished, which is important. And we can move faster than what's actually helpful to what we're trying to accomplish. So we have to find that balance of when do we move slow? When do we allow the relationship to build first, that authentic engagement to happen around? Okay, let's, let's come up with solutions together, not just an agenda that's already been predetermined. So it's, it's challenging. It's long-term it's long work. And it should be long-term work. And therefore, even in policy... There, there's this uh, mindset that happens in politics because no, no one legislature can bind another legislature to what they want to do in funding or in policy. And so what you should always do is have a vision of building up on things and how, how they can work and resist the temptation of it's one and done. I've got it. We, we fixed all problems. Thank you, parents. You're done. Now go off and be good. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with youth. And so, uh, and yet there are many, many good solutions that we can come up with that are solutions for today, but they're just the next step for tomorrow. And I think that's, that's what you're saying. I'm kind of curious, uh, how, do we, how do people get started in this? I know what we're trying to do here in Florida. Let's give a vision to, let's, let's give a vision to two groups of folks, folks that are like us wanting to engage the, the parent associations and engage the youth and so forth. Give a vision to legislators. I have quite a few legislators that watch this as well. Let's give a vision of how they can be involved in this. I actually had the opportunity to visit the General Assembly um, last year um, with one of our um, lobbyists here. And I got to speak to a number of legislators and representatives about what I wanted to see change and my experiences. So just sitting down and taking time to engage with these youth and making time and space for them. 
um, I think will be really good, whether that's through, um, you know, panels even, um, you know, workshops, community boards, um, simple things like, um, you know, um, internships, just, just small things to um, create space for and engage, you know, families and youth bringing in, you know, a parent initiative group, or um, just all those things can really help when it comes down to it. The training aspect of this as well, is there being able to have, again, I always like to use resist the temptation of doing a one and done. We 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 heard you were finished, or we had a little seminar. You, you didn't get it, you didn't completely healed because you went to my seminar. I mean, it, there's a there's a process in which that needs to, to be developed. That's what Dr. Nellis and I are talking about. That's why these these parent initiatives associations that we put together, these coalitions or groups, um, they help move keep moving the ball forward and keep talking about how we bring in expertise into helping with the training. Matt, your comments around that. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's two things that come to mind for me and it's, it's around narrative and, and action. We've talked a lot about action, but, but the narrative piece of this is really important. It goes back to the importance of story um, and storytelling. And there are narratives that exist about the families that we serve. And we have, to, we have to challenge what those narratives are. Um, and so, for example, the narrative that the issues of child welfare are around bad parenting decisions or bad people hurting children, hurting their own children. And we know from the data, right, around neglect versus abuse as entries into the child welfare system that that's not true in most cases. And this is really about issues of unmet concrete needs, back to what we talked about earlier. So we have to see parents as people who love their children. And we have to start from that place of seeing the whole person. We have to actually see ourselves in the other person. And that's the place to start, right? And you can only do that by getting close enough to the people that are experiencing the system, experiencing these issues and developing relationships. So you know, when we're not in session and we're not so busy, be in your home community and find out who is working with these families. How can you get connected? How can you spend time? How can you start to build relationship? The only way we can see ourselves in somebody else is through a human connection, interaction, and, and relationship. And those narratives will start to shift and we'll start to see parents in a different light. It's happened. It's happening for me in my work. And I'm seeing it happen in other policymakers and, and community leaders here in North Carolina. And the shift is transformative in where the action then goes. So then it's, you know, start with relationships, start with getting close. And then it's what actions do we take? So, you know, do we, do we you know, um, create a, a forum at the legislature where parents are actively engaged in an ongoing basis? Do we have groups in our own home communities where we can be, you know, learning and workshopping, you know, what are the issues? What are the solutions? Um, you know, one of the things that I did when I, when I uh, became uh, uh, responsible for our foster care program is uh, mentors, right? So, okay, I'm in a new leadership role and I'm responsible for this foster care program. So my two first mentors were um, young people who had aged out of foster care. And they were my teachers, right? So that's action that, that we, can, we can take as leaders. So, you know, can we have parents who've experienced the system as our, our mentors? You know, can we create programming that actually compensates and pays for parents' time to be the, the expert leaders that they already are? So now we've started to uh, 
create infrastructure around parent leadership and parent so, choice. So let's just camp around that real quick, like because you you used my favorite word, pay, right? Because there is a funding side to this. In fact, uh, the the coalition this year has gone before the legislature and says, as we're trying to develop this, we believe it's going to take some seed money to this effect to be able to engage and get professionals uh, to help develop and set these type of things up. How did you do it in North Carolina? Is this a, this, was this an activity that CHS went and tried to get some seed funding or did they just decide we're just going to make, this is so important, we'll just go ahead and make this a priority. How, how did that look look in your state? Yeah, a couple things. So the SESO program that Mariah mentioned that she's been a part of, you know, it's been around for 24 years and it's it's funded through a state contract and, you know, local philanthropy. And any young person that's going to be involved in SESO's work is compensated for their time, for their expertise. Um, as we're launching Institute for Family, we were able to raise some private philanthropy dollars and as we start to do our parent engagement work, um, we will also use those funds to compensate people's time and expertise. Um, and it's, I, I, I don't think there's any other option than, than to do that. I think I get paid to show up to share my professional expertise and what I know. And if a parent is coming to the table, you know, they should get paid for their time and their expertise as well. I think it's, it's one way to think about equity. Um, and, and inclusion and diversity. I mean, those are important things right now for all of us. And parent engagement, parent leadership is equity, diversity, and inclusion. And compensation is, is just, it's just a necessary part of that work, I think. We'll have to go offline on this, but I'm going to look at maybe some of the areas because a lot of this drives prevention I mean, we're learning from this. And so there is prevention, intervention, diversion programs that can come out of that, which then there is, like you said, FFPSA was driven to try to change an old antiquated system of child welfare and try to move it more upstream. And this is really what we're doing. We're listening to the people who can help us move upstream to keep from having these very issues and keep that family together. And I think that, that uh, that's the old Fram oil filter thing. Pay me now or pay me later. And if you do this ahead of time and learning these lessons and getting folks involved, I think that there's a, there's a, there's a better outcome uh, than having to have children and families get traumatized through this entire process uh, of child welfare. I know we do our best when they come into our system of care, but uh, the, the better answer that everyone shakes their head and agrees with would be is if we could do stuff that would uh, keep them from ever coming into the system of care. I haven't met a legislator yet that I say that to and they don't shake their head and they're agreeing with us. Now it's the way we do it. Guys, this has been fun. And I, I want to tell you how much, uh, you, first of all, what a blessing you are to your state. Uh, and now across the United States and particularly here in Florida, you're welcome to come here anytime you want and be a part of what we're trying to do here. But uh, what a blessing you are. And, and I appreciate the, the spirit that both of you have in engaging this, both in a um, authentic way, but also in a very professional way. And, uh, and I'm hoping that uh, as Florida is moving forward in this, that we're going to be able to do that same thing. I think that the legislature here in Florida is very interested in this conversation. I know that uh, I know that many of our members are, and we've been talking about this. With that said, I'll give you just uh, just a minute for both of you to wrap up any comments that you wanted to make that you didn't make, and and anything you would like to say to us. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you. It's it's been a pleasure, and um, I'm I'm excited that you all are going in this direction of really thinking um, seriously about parent engagement and parent leadership. 
I do think it's how we're going to get upstream and upstream in the right way. I think it's actually the, the only way. And I think, you know, the last thing I would say, just as I think about child welfare going forward, I, I often come back to this thought of, you know, we all care about the, the safety and the well-being of the children that we serve. And, and we should. And, but what I think is that we demonstrate that care and concern for kids by how we invest in their parents. And I don't think we've done enough to invest in their parents. And I think we have to do more. And it starts by listening to parents' expertise and engaging them in, in meaningful ways. So I, I'm just excited that you all are going down that road. And, and we want to you know, kind of learn with you as you go. So thank you. And we'll continue to work with you as well. Mariah, any, any last parting comments? Um, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much for this opportunity. And um, I also wanted to say that um, these three things are really important to me when it comes to doing this work. Like Matt highlighted just accountability, action, and adjustment. Like those three things um, have really stuck with me and even helped me with doing my work with um, youth and families as well. Um, taking accountability for, you know, conditions, um, for mindsets, taking responsibility, action. Um, what can we do better? What can we do with the information that we are given and adjustment? How can we come in and reframe and reshape and rebuild <laughs> a lot of ours? But um, those three things have definitely helped me along my journey. So um, thank you for this opportunity. And I would just say keep um, youth voice, family voice, and family preservation at the center of this work and outcomes are more likely to improve. At the center of this is what we're going to do. By the way, I love your terminology. Uh, you, you've got a future in politics if you want to go in there because they, they need to hear that as well. Uh, the accountability and action part is always important. Uh, but then the adjustment, recognizing that there are times when we can, things have changed and we need to do it better. But, uh, well, guys, you guys have been a real pleasure for me to be a part of today. I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, and what you're doing. We look forward to having more conversations with you. And, uh, and as we're going forward to uh, to continue to do this work. We'll keep you informed on some of the great things that we're doing. With that, thank you all for uh, being a part of this episode of Nurturing Wellbeing with Kurt Kelly, and we look forward to talking with you again. Lived experience is a critical component to being able to engage the conversations as we are developing policies, procedures, and processes to heal children and families. And so I'm very excited that Florida is making an investment in this area and that we are helping to lead uh, this concept across the United States. Nurturing well-being is about taking care of the family, developing it and nurturing it. So we're thankful that you are part of this episode of Nurturing Well-Being. Listen and subscribe to Nurturing Well-Being with Kurt Kelly for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. You can rate and review. We'd appreciate you giving us a five. Thanks to your support, we can continue to engage with those who serve the children of Florida and continue our mission to support Florida's families.